0: Good morning. As I mentioned, we're going to be starting John chapter 5 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. Randy's going to come up in just a moment and read the first 17 verses for us. And then we'll take this look at this amazing act of Jesus' healing powers at the Pool of Bethesda. And... What I suspect will be for some of you some very shocking and surprising realizations because they were shocking and surprising to me as I put this all together this week. That what starts out looking like one thing becomes something very different and the kind of confusion that comes with it. But before then, we need to read it and see what it is that Jesus does. So, Randy.
1: After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there was a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great crowd of individuals, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at this certain time into the pool and stirred up the water after the stirring of the water whoever stepped first was healed of whatever disease he had a certain man was there who had an illness for 38 years when jesus saw him lying there he knew that he had been in this condition now a long time he said to him do you want to be healed The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Immediately the man was healed, took up his bed, and walked. That day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who has healed me said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have become whole, sin no more, lest least something wrong happens to you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Jesus answered them, My father is working still, and I am working.
0: Thank you, Randy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness, the robustness, the rotundness even of your word and the way it just projects forth from the page with authority as you say and speak. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at your word, trying to understand this event in the way that you created it to be and the way that John was recording it for us, that that same richness and robustness and rotundness will come upon us, that it will just speak forth the life-giving hope that you created it for. And we ask, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our minds Open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see you and know you as you really are. Not these things we've made you into, but who you really are and worship you in spirit and in truth. Worshiping you in spirit out of the truth of who you are. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, one of the challenges of dealing with this passage is there's so much to deal with. I mean... We've got to deal with the text, but I've got to do that without getting into the weeds. Because we've got a couple of problems here. I mean, the first one is just this thing that John writes here in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, which feast? I don't know. John didn't tell me which feast. He didn't tell us which feast. And so off we go. There's been no small amount of ink and paper exposed to the air in an attempt to guess at which feast this was. And then once you've guessed which feast this is, that now becomes an underlying theme of what this passage is really about. But there's a problem with that mindset. There's a problem with that approach. There's a problem with that interpretive method. You don't know what feast it was. He doesn't say. And... If he doesn't say, then it can't be that important to the underlying theme of the event. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not feel that it was important for us to know what feast this was. Therefore, we can rest confidently on the reality that not knowing what feast this is doesn't matter. What matters is there was a feast... There was a whole bunch of them that it could have been that caused Jesus to go to Jerusalem. And that's the important part. The only reason John writes it is to let us know this is why he's in Jerusalem. Because the last thing he said is Jesus is in Galilee. And now all of a sudden Jesus is in Jerusalem. How did that happen? Well, there was a feast. And so he went down for the feast. Which feast? It doesn't matter which feast. And you can almost hear him telling the story to somebody, right? All of us can imagine listening to John try to tell the story and that really inquisitive person who just always has lots of questions in the room. So Jesus went down to Jerusalem for a feast. Which feast? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which feast. It just matters that he was in Jerusalem. Okay. We don't know. And that's okay. God doesn't want us to know because we don't need to know. And therein lies the first real problem we have with this passage. There's things that we don't need to know and we're not okay with that. God says, you don't need to know that. It's okay. Wait a minute. I'm not okay with that. Why? Why are we not okay with not knowing something? He tells us we don't need to know. Because we believe that by our much knowledge, we will be better saved, better able to predict him. I don't know. I I, I know why I... Can't let it go and not be okay with not knowing things. I have to know. I have to know everything. It's in my sinful nature to have to know everything. What are you doing? I'm doing this. Why are you doing it? Because I want to. I mean, this is my conversation with my children, right? What are you doing? I'm doing this. Why are you doing that? Well, because I want to. Why do you want to do that? Behind every little thing, there's this dangerous event lurking that I have to uncover to protect them. That's the same mindset that I come to God. It's an element of my lack of trust if I am not okay with him telling me I don't need to know this. We hadn't even got out of verse one and we're already dealing with the trust issue again. Will this ever end? Will there ever be a day I don't have to deal with the trust issue? No, no, there will not. But this obsession with knowing what the feast is uncovers a heart issue that we really need to deal with. We're not OK with not knowing. So therefore, we have something else we need to talk with our father about. And it doesn't even really have anything to do with the passage. We're not even dealing with the real main subject of the passage. And I've already uncovered my problems. Then we have an actual real problem. Some of you were probably lost and confused as Randy read. Because some of you in your Bibles, it jumps from verse 3 to verse 5. There is no verse 4. And Randy's reading verse 4, but your Bible doesn't have that. What's going on here? What is this thing about verse 4? Who took verse 4 out of my Bible? This is one of those places where... This discipline of textual criticism comes into play in our scriptures. This thing of studying all the ancient manuscripts to try and put together an accurate representation of what John actually wrote. See, the problem is, is we have absolutely none of the original letters or gospels or anything in the New Testament. The one that John actually wrote with his hand, it's gone. Probably, I mean, who knows what happened to it? maybe it just disintegrated and fell apart like books tend to do over decades and centuries but the original one that he wrote is gone and all that's left are copies that people made of it over the time and they were handwritten copies and over time with a handwritten copy somebody misses a word well but that's fairly easy to figure out there's a word as you're reading it wait there's a word missing right but then we have these groups of individuals, many of them genuine, God-loving, Christ-believing men and women who, beyond my comprehension, devote themselves to the arduous, way-too-detail-oriented work of going through every single copy of the Gospel of John that exists in the handwritten Versions of these ancient manuscripts to try and figure out what John actually wrote. And that's what happens with verse 4. Our best evidence that we have to work with, John didn't actually write verse 4. The part about an angel stirring the water and if you get into the water while the angel stirred and you're the first one in the water, John didn't actually write that. Because when John wrote his gospel... Everybody understood what was going on at the pool of Bethesda and why. He didn't need to explain the angel part. But then over the centuries, people far removed from Jerusalem, far removed from that practice, far removed from the cultic temple, cultic healing practice of that day, didn't understand what was happening. And so people would put a margin note in their copies explaining what it was. And then as copies were made, someone decided just to insert that into the text as if John had actually written it. This is not somebody who had ill intentions. Obviously look, it's 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 a helpful explanation of what's happening, what's written in verse four. It's just not what John wrote. And in this case, we don't mean in we don't lose anything by verse four not being there. Good scholarship, good New Testament scholarship has discovered this and can affirm it and tell us these things. And so it's not that big a deal. If your Bible has verse four, don't worry about it. If your Bible doesn't have verse four, just look at the bottom of the page because it has down there a footnote telling you exactly what verse four says. In fact, they even include the verse number in your footnote. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped into the water after the stirring of the water was healed to whatever disease he had. So it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's okay. I know it can be freaky. But that's the whole point of textual criticism. The point of it is not. For these kind of things to come up and you and I to be afraid that we don't have God's word in its fullest reality, textual criticism is about the exact opposite. You and I can have great comfort and great confidence that when we read our Bible, it's exactly what the original author wrote. Now, the subject of textual criticism becomes more important when we get to chapter 8, Because there's a big problem there in chapter 8. And we'll deal more fully with this whole subject of textual criticisms and how we know that what is written is written is really what the original author wrote. And we can have confidence in our Bible. I promise you, I promise you, we'll deal with this subject fully when we get to chapter 8. I may even have a special surprise for you that day, but we'll see. Our hands are full today just dealing with these 16 verses apart from the textual issue of verse four, which is really not that big a deal, right? We all you can recognize that it's not there. It's not that big a deal. What's really the big deal is what John was trying to tell us by writing this event into his gospel. The pools of Bethesda here in verses two and three. That word Bethesda is really comes from the Hebrew word Beth Estadata. It was a word that describes the house of twin mercies. That's what the word means. Some, Bible, some manuscripts and some ancient texts even had used the word Beth- Bethesda. And the problem with Bethesda is it doesn't really quite fit. The house of two fishes just doesn't quite fit the idea of a healing pool. I don't know about you, but I'm not getting into no fish pool to get healed. But a pool of mercy? Okay, yeah, I'll get into that. I can get into that. And we know that Bethesda is the correct word because in 1960, in the Qumran caves, they found the Copper Scroll. And in that Copper Scroll, it described this exact location in Jerusalem with the Hebrew word Bethesda. So we know that's the right word. We know it's really the Twin Pools of Mercy, thank God, not the fish pools. We know exactly where these pools are, even today. You and I could literally walk right up to them today if we were in Jerusalem. They're just right off the northeast side of the Temple Mount, right in front of St. Anne's Cathedral, and they are huge. They are massive. Because of earthquakes and other events that have occurred in Jerusalem over the years, they've sunk down into the ground, but they're fully excavated. I mean, you have to go down like three flights of stairs, almost three stories from the ground level to get to them today. And one pool is as big as this whole building. And there's two of them. And you can even see the ruins of the five columns that are there, that were there originally two on each side of the two pools and then one in the middle so that it could support a roof over the pools. It's just amazing. It's stunning. It's huge. They're just amazingly big. And in Jesus' day, these pools had developed a healing cult. For something happened somewhere. We don't know exactly what. Nobody seems to know what. Have you ever noticed that about the cults? Something happened, but nobody knows exactly what. And when they began to believe in this, something that happened, the word got around that there were healing powers in these pools. If you can be healed, if you have just the right conditions, right? So if it's just the right conditions, we can have this miraculous healing of a person's Physical conditions. You got to be there at the pool, right? You can't be standing someplace else. You got to be at the pool. And in a random moment, that's completely unpredictable. The waters stir up. And when they do, if you're the first person in, you will receive a miraculous healing for your physical condition. But you got to be first. And you have to get in the pool after the water is stirred. You can't be in the pool already when the water is stirred. That doesn't count. You're disqualified from the healing miracle. Are you starting to get the twisted lie that this is? This cultic practice this idea that if you just do things the right way at exactly the right moment, you get a miracle. Does that sound like our father? No, no, it does not sound at all like the character of our father in heaven. To create this trick play where if you do everything exactly right, you get your miracle. This twisted lie that does not fit the character of God. Think about this for a moment. Think about how God Look, I I fully acknowledge to you in this moment that I'm a little bit more sensitive to this subject than others. But think about the torturous lie this is, how brutal this is to the emotions of the people around there. You can imagine how desperate these people were. You understand how desperate people are for physical healing from significant problems of blindness and lameness and deafness in our culture and society today with all the miracles of modern medicine and the technologies that we have. You can imagine the desperateness in their day when they had nothing. They didn't even have wheelchairs. If you were lame, you didn't even Can you think about this for a second. You're, you're physically lame. You, your legs don't work. And nobody's even invented the wheelchair yet. How do you get around? You don't. So you can understand the desperateness of these folks. You can appreciate how they just cling to anything that gives them the possible hope. If there's the most remotest possibility that I could be physically healed, I'll believe it. What hopelessness do I have if I don't believe in the myth? And this myth was particularly brutal. Think about this. You're a lame person there at the Pool of Bethesda. You can't walk. The only way you can get there is to crawl as hard as you can on your elbows, dragging your dead body behind you. That dead part that's paralyzed from the waist down, you drag that behind you while you're on your elbows. Have you ever tried that before? Intentionally not letting your muscles work in your legs and hips and dragging yourself on your elbows, it's hate—it's I, I, not very fun. It's very unpleasant. But that's the only way you can get around. And so you're here at the edge of the pool and the water gets stirred and you've gotta do that. But everybody's, the, the other folks that are there, the blind the and the deaf, the blind and the deaf, they've got full mobility. They're gonna beat you into the pool every time. You never, look, you're never going to make it. It's the ultimate tease. Here, if you can get in, you'll be healed. But you're never going to make it because you can't get there fast enough on your elbows. And it's not like the blind person has it any better. You're the blind person. You're right there, right? You've got full mobility. You can jump into the pool quickly. Once you realize it's been stirred, But it's random. There's no predictability to it. And you can't see that the water's bubbling or stirring. Maybe you pick up a sound, but you're like, was that really it? And then by the time your brain has processed it, you hear the splash of somebody else jumping in the pool. You're blind. You're never going to see it. You could get there, but you never will. Because somebody else will always beat you there. And then you have the deaf person. Right? They're the one who probably of all the, all the invalids, the deaf person is probably the one with the best chance of getting in the pool first because they have full mobility and they have their sight. They're sitting there on the side of the pool. They're watching. They see it bubble up. They can quickly throw, jump up and use their legs to th- cast themselves into the pool as long as they're looking. Remember, it's just random and unpredictable if they happen to be looking off to the side or distracted or taking a nap they're not going to see it happening and their ears might pick it up but again somebody else beats them to the pool because they weren't paying attention this is demonic this idea of giving a person this idea of giving a person hope that they can never have this ultimate tease. This is a demonic idea. This 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 healing cult around these pools. It's the ultimate tease. It's it's it's, it's satanic. It robs anything resembling God's truth from His people, and this is happening right outside the stinking temple. I mean, but. In less of a distance between us and Castle Rock is how far this pathetic practice is taking place from the Holy of Holies. But that shouldn't really surprise us because the enemy always wants a counterfeit of the real thing right next to the real thing. And so he did. I guess part of me is just like perplexed how the religious leaders of Jerusalem could even let this happen, could even let this go on. If they had half a brain and they really believed what the Bible said, if they really believed what the Pentateuch, the law and the prophets said, they would have shut it down. They would have told the people the truth and shut it down. But they didn't. I don't know why. So this... Demonic, satanic, cruel lie perpetuated just outside the temple. And in this man's case, for 38 years, hoping for a myth to be true. Always just out of reach. That's the counterfeit. The counterfeit is always just out of reach. But then comes Jesus. Then comes the gate busting Jesus, the gates of hell busting Jesus that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Here comes Jesus invading the cult. He just busts right into this healing cult temple because he's on a mission of truth and healing. Just bust right in there. And notice what Jesus does. He doesn't touch the man. He doesn't do any physical act to make this man well. Jesus just speaks the word of life. And it is so. Stand up. Like he doesn't even say the magic Benny Hen words. Be healed. He doesn't even say that. He just says, Get up. Get up. Take your bed and walk. And it is so. Just like when he spoke all things into existence at the beginning of time in Genesis 1. Let there be light. And it was so. Let the waters divide from the earth. And it was so. Get up, take your bed and walk and it was so. it was so. that's the authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior that he just speaks, and it is so. you need healing all you, you don't need you don't need some kind of special cultic practice to get healed. You just need Jesus to say, get up. And then there's this whole issue that it's the Sabbath. That just doesn't seem to bother Jesus at all. He just busts right into the temple cult like he owned it and says to this man, get up. And he's healed. And as we will see later, Jesus is tired of the sabbath nonsense of the pharisees and religious leaders it'll take us till next week to really get into that but we see it here even in this text he's just like fed up with it this nonsense that your rules are going to rule me which are stupid rules to begin with your stupid rules are going to rule me no let me set things straight but then the way they respond after this guy gets up and walks is Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who was healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Okay, you know, they're Pharisees. You can't, you can't expect much from them. They was born that way. So, okay, it's the Sabbath. They don't know this was a guy who was laying at the pool of Bethesda for the last 38 years. They don't know that. They just see a guy walking through the streets carrying his mat. Okay, fine. I'll give you that one. What are you doing? It's the Sabbath. You can't carry that. But then the man answers them. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. This is just stunning. Do you see their? Look at their response. Are you kidding me? The man who healed me said, take up your bed and walk. Who is this man that said, take up your bed and walk? Did you not hear him say the part about being miraculously healed? Did that not enter your ears at all? Apparently not, because that's the only thing they care about is this fool who said you could carry your mat. Who is this fool that said such a thing? You don't even care that this guy was miraculously healed. That just means nothing to you. No, it doesn't. It doesn't because he's breaking their rules and this person gave him permission to break their rules. That's all they care about. Who told you you could break my rules? That's what they're saying. (sighs) Just completely unconcerned or uncaring that an invalid was miraculously healed. They only cared that someone was breaking their rules. (sighs) And then... The Pharisee's response is just enough to pull your hair out by itself. It is so pathetically stupid to have this response that we overlook this guy's response. I mean, what's up with this guy? Look at what he does. He throws Jesus under the bus. Well, who is this man that said, take up your bed and walk? I I don't know. I didn't get his name. I don't know who he was. And then Jesus meets the guy in the temple and says, look, see, you're well. Send no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And look at the guy's response. The, The way John writes it, you can almost see it in your mind, can't you? It's like, oh, you're the guy that healed me. Stay right here. And he runs to the Pharisees. I found him. I found him. I found the guy that told me I could carry my mat. He didn't say, I found the guy that healed me. He says to them, I found the guy that carried my mat. Told me I could carry my mat. He shows the physical transformation of being physically healed. But he certainly did not experience any spiritual heart transformation. Contrast, this guy... With the blind guy in chapter 9 of John. The one who not only recognized that he had been given a miraculous physical healing, but also underwent the spiritual heart transformation to go along with it, who says, well, isn't that amazing to these blind Pharisees? I was blind, but even I can see that this guy is from God. And as you recall, that didn't go over very well. But this guy, this guy, no, thank you. Just stay right here because I need to make sure the Pharisees know who you are. What? And then, of course, that immediately raises the question, what are you doing, Jesus? You're obviously not trying to help somebody that you're trying to save and give eternal life to because this fool didn't take it. So, why are you doing this? Why is Jesus doing this? Because it's clear from this man's actions that Jesus' healing him was not about this man having faith or his healing coming with faith or coming out of faith, like it did with the royal official from Herod's court last week. That guy had faith, this guy didn't. So, Jesus' healing him wasn't about faith in him. Because this man has none after his encounter with Jesus. Wait a second, you know, that's probably something to think about. A Jew in Jerusalem is healed miraculously like that, that guy's son up in Capernaum. One of those Galileans. He's healed and he has faith. One of those guys has faith in Jesus. But this guy, the Jew in Jerusalem, even after the miraculous healing, nope, I don't know who you are and I don't care. Thank you very much for healing me. Have a nice life. This man has no faith. While it is true that Jesus is creating an encounter with the religious leaders, this event is much more than Jesus picking a fight with the Pharisees. This isn't because Jesus woke up and was feeling feisty that day and just said, Oh, I know how to get them to the Pharisees' skins and get them started. We're going to have a fight today. I'll go heal somebody on the Sabbath. That'll really tick them off. But then to really, really tick them off, I'll just tell the guy to get up and carry his mat so that it makes them really mad. No, this isn't Jesus just picking a fight with the Pharisees. It's much bigger than that. Jesus is standing in Jerusalem in the middle of a satanic, demonic, awful, twisted perversion of the hope in this cultic practice of healing around the pools of Bethesda and declaring his lordship over all things. Even your cultic temple is mine if I choose to take it. He's established his lordship and his fulfillment as the Messiah. But wait, there's more. It would be enough if that was all Jesus was doing, establishing his lordship and the fulfillment of his Messiahship by busting into this satanic, demonic place where this twisted hope that it's not anything of God that he never created, never set it up and saying, this is mine. Let me show you what real hope and real healing is. It's much bigger than that. This is him showing the Jews Isaiah 35 has come to be. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 35. We're going to try this. By we, I mean me. Trying to read the entire chapter 35. The 35th chapter of the book of Isaiah. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Camel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, Your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. That sounds like some war language to me. Like I'm going to bust into some place and beat up some folks who've been messing with my people. Kind of like a false. Demonic hope around a pool in Jerusalem. And then verse five. the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness and the unclean shall not pass over it and it shall belong to those who walk on the way even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come upon on it. They shall not be found there But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Here, right there around this pool, Isaiah 35 comes to life the fruits of the Messiah promised by the prophet are tasted and made real for the people that day right there. The promise of everything in Isaiah 35 begins to come to fruition. Can there be such a place as where no unclean things shall pass over it, and even if fools are walking on it, they are going to stay on the path. Where there's no lions, well, in our case, mountain lions, and there's no ravenous beast on it, and the redeemed shall walk there. Can there really be such a place as this? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, and there shall be gladness and joy. And sorrow and sig- sighing shall flee away? Can there really be such a place as this? Yes. Where Jesus is, is where this place is. Where Jesus is in heaven, is where this place is today. And where Jesus is when he returns here onto this earth, is where this place will be then. And while we have to take it metaphorically and symbolically. That place is what my heart, mind and soul are like when Jesus is present in my heart, mind and soul. And your heart, mind and soul. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with this reality. Jesus is Lord over all and he rules Everything he made. Jesus is Lord of all, including, ruling everything he has made. Every square inch of this universe, Jesus claims is his. There is not one square inch of the entire universe, not just this city, not just this state, not just this continent or this globe. Are this solar system. No, not just this galaxy called the Milky Way. Every square inch of the entire universe Jesus claims is His, including those places where the hell and demons claim is theirs. No matter how dark this place is, when Jesus sends us there on mission, the mission of redemption, it is his and we walk on sanctified ground. Now, if you go into the dark place on your own, out of your own Im- imagination and deciding that you're going to do this on your own, you're on your own, friend. You got no promise of Jesus' protection when you go off doing your own thing in your own way. But when Jesus sends you into the darkest places. For his mission of redemption, as his agent of redemption, you're walking on sanctified ground. You're walking on his ground. And he's using you as his agent of reclamation to reclaim it. Using you and I as agents of reclamation and redemption. It is true, Isaiah 35 is only partially fulfilled for us today. It's that part of the already, but the not yet. We experience the partial fulfillment of it. In passages like the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus did all that. He did all that. He did all that in John's gospel. He did all that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, all of them. All four of those elements are there. So in that fulfilled but we don't have the full part of it. We have to wait for that. But make no mistake, one day we will. In this life or the next, we will feel, experience, and taste the fulfillment of Isaiah 35 in every way. And I say this one for last intentionally because really it's the only one that while all of these application points I've given you in are true, this is the one that truly fits fully and most appropriately with what Jesus is doing here in this event at Bethesda. Are you willing to receive the unorthodox miracle? Jesus is doing an unorthodox miracle by going into this pool and healing this man on the Sabbath and telling him to get up and walk. And are you willing to receive the unorthodox miracle? It's easy to say, oh, of course I am. Because we don't understand what context that unorthodox miracle will come in. Maybe it comes in a way we don't particularly want it to come. Or maybe it comes in a way that's not exactly the one we wanted. But whatever it is, when it comes, are we going to receive it? I I pray that I am. I pray that I'm really ready to receive his unorthodox miracle, whatever it is and whenever it happens. And in sort of a twisted not twisted, but in a ironic sense and way, the only way I'll be able to receive the unorthodox miracle is if he opens the eyes of my heart. And he opens the eyes of my mind, causes my ears to hear, and my eyes to see, and my heart to believe. It's the only way I'll actually receive the unorthodox miracle when it comes. And as far as I can understand it, it's the only way you will receive it as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are the Savior who redeems your people and creates a place that the redeemed can walk with no fear. Thank you, Jesus, that you are Lord over all, that there's not one square inch of this universe that you don't claim is yours. Thank you, Jesus, that you are still the God who loves and gives the unorthodox miracles to your people. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people here within this body of believers who not only can receive the unorthodox miracle that you might send us, but that we would receive it with joy and that the joy of our salvation will just bubble up to the place that even overshadows the unorthodox miracle because there's nothing but joy and worship in you. In Jesus' name, amen.